We're coming to a point in 1 Samuel um, where uh, we will pause, at least for a season, but still uh, we will consider this first part of chapter 16 because it is important to finish off uh, this section by reminding ourselves that, or by not finishing on a, on a dark note, that in the same way that we finished chapter 15 last week, uh, on that sad note that Saul was rejected as a king, to remind ourselves that there is hope in the midst of darkness. As the, that old uh, reformed motto uh, proclaimed, post tenebrous looks after darkness light. And very much when you come to chapter 16, it is that sense. After the darkness of the last few chapters, as Saul descended into this, into this pit, after the darkness that came upon Samuel with the rejection of Saul as king, that caused Samuel to grieve and to mourn, perhaps even to despair, light shines, just glimmers for a, for, for a bit, but nonetheless, powerful glimmers, glimpses of, of God's grace shining through. And chapter 16 is the turning point on the story. 1 Samuel can be divided, well, Sa the book of Samuel 1 and 2, uh, this was originally just the one book. It was divided into two scrolls for logistical reasons uh, in, uh, in the olden days where books were written in scrolls and therefore they had a limitation on their sides. But Samuel was just the one book. It's divided one and two here for us. But Samuel can be divided into three parts, not of the same size, but first you have the, the section about, well, four parts, in, in fact, even. Uh, first you have the section about Samuel, Hannah, uh, the barren woman giving birth to a son. Then you have the section about Saul, which we've been looking at in the last few months. And from verse 16 onwards, it is the section about David. Initially, from 16 to the end of 1 Samuel, it's about the downfall of Saul and the rise of David to kingship. And then 2 Samuel is uh, David's reign. So that's just a little bit of the structure so we know where we are. And we're going to pause in this uh, passage uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. But from the beginning of 1 Samuel... And now even to its conclusion, the, the one lesson, the one main teaching for us is to realize the amazing detail of God's sovereignty. It's for us to be convinced, to be persuaded from God's word that God orders all things right. Even as we look just at chapter 16, as, as David is chosen by God. Even the next section that we won't consider, uh, where David then is chosen by Saul uh, to be his uh, armor bearer, to be his uh, squire, you realize that David was only chosen by Saul because David was first chosen by God. You, that's what we are meant to see in the book of Samuel. The wonderful, detailed overruling providence of God in every aspect of life 
And this all leads us to, to the, the son of David who comes, the Messiah who comes, the anointed one, the true anointed one who comes uh, just about a thousand, or a little bit less than a thousand years later. And he institutes the, the kingdom of God. All life and history are decreed by God for God's purpose. So that's a bit of a, an introduction as we come to the end of this section. But what do we see? We see a prophet who was this, not despairing perhaps, but mourning, grieving over the events that took place in chapter 15. Samuel was saddened. He loved Saul. He prayed for Saul's success because Saul's success as a king would be Israel's success, would be the people of God's success. And yet he made a fool of himself. He, 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 he made rash and foolish decisions. He was rejected. And we find him here at the beginning, Sam, at the beginning of chapter 16. Samuel is in a, in a mourning uh, attitude. But God comes to him and he says, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Samuel is confused by the present state of affairs. And let me just say this. In a sense, it is good to mourn. It is good to grieve over the, the state of affairs. It shows a heart of love. It shows that Samuel has a beating heart. He's not some cold-hearted individual uh, uh, with his head uh, somewhere else, uh, but not on this earth. And he doesn't feel for this present state of things. But yet, we must not grieve, as the, the, the author in the New Testament says, we must not grieve as those without, without hope, as those of the world who are without hope. And Samuel is not without hope, for God comes to him. He must not forget. He must not forget. We must not forget that there is a God who overrules. There is a God who is in control of even these uh, bitter providences. There is a God, yes, who rejects the one man, but as we see in this passage, there is a God who chooses a different man, who raises up a different man. Mourning is appropriate, but in the same sense, mourning perhaps is not to be prolonged when we are gods. And this is applicable to us in our day and age, in our present condition. I don't know about you, but as I look, and I'm sure you, you think in the, same, in the same way, as I look to the state of the church, our local church, as I look to the state of the church uh, wider, local, and, and then universal, uh, especially in the West, as you look at the state of the nation, as you look at the state of, of affairs in, the, in our world, there is a sense that we too grieve that we too mourn for, the, for, for what's happening. It is easy, in fact, as I know, to become overwhelmed with despair, but despair is sinful, and we shouldn't. But we, why do we despair? We despair because we look at the circumstances. We look at the state of the affairs, and we take our eyes off of God, and then we begin to feel despondent 
we begin to lose hope. Because our hope is not before our eyes. The source of our hope is not before our eyes. To despair is to despise God's sovereignty, God's control, God's providence. And we cannot allow ourselves to fall into this. And God graciously, before even Samuel despaired, I believe, came to Samuel and moved him from lamentation to action. He tells him, I was the one that rejected me. It is my doing, he says. And now fill your horn, your recipient for oil, and go. Go to Jesse in Bethlehem. And I will make, I will, because I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Wonderful promise. Wonderful truth here that we see. The time of lamentation for Samuel is over. No more grief and mourning, Samuel. Get up and go. Be moved. You'll see God's work. The morning of salvation is dawning upon, upon this time. There is a king coming. And you are the one, God says to him, who are to make his way straight. You are to prepare a way for him. Very much Samuel here is a, a sort of John the Baptist. A picture, a, 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 a type of the John the Baptist that is to come. And this phrase that God has provided for himself a king among this, his sons already tells us that there is a difference in quality, in character with this new king. Saul was one that was chosen by the people for themselves, a, a king like the nations. But here God says, no, I've chosen the king for myself, according to my own heart. Here we see as well, don't we, God's faithfulness to his promises. He will not leave Israel. He will not abandon Israel, even though they have sinned, sinned grievously. Even though their sin was heinous in the sight of the Lord, his grace endures on. And he will save his people. And we see, don't we, from verse 2 onwards, uh, a certain fear in Samuel, which is natural. Humanly speaking, it is a natural fear. Saul was not some kind of uh, uh, pleasant, especially as the years have been going and as he's been growing in his own eyes. He, Saul becomes uh, more and more uh, autocratic, more and more absolutist and he will not see kindly to Samuel anointing another king. That's a high treason kind of act. And Samuel knows this. If Saul gets worth of it, I'm dead. And God tells Samuel, well, take a heifer and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Incidentally, I won't go into detail here because of time. But incidentally here, you have... That principle, don't you? That the Lord Jesus tells the disciples as, he's, as he sends them into the villages to be wise as serpents. God is not telling Samuel to lie. 
God is telling him, don't offer the whole truth in this situation. Be wise. Tell them, because you're going to be doing that, that you're going to offer sacrifice, but don't tell anymore. Be wise as serpents. And from this moment on, that's what we see happening. Samuel gets up, he goes, and he's protected. Again, a, a, a reminder for us that we are to be obedient, even when fears assail us. That we need to understand that we are safe and secure in God's hands. And that while we are in the sphere of obedience, nothing, no harm can come upon us that is not God's doing. God is providing. God is protecting and caring. And Samuel goes faithfully, obediently, and he arrives, doesn't he? He arrives in, in Bethlehem, and there's this interesting interaction. Let me just say this as well. Um, sometimes for us to obey, even when there are fears, it is appropriate. Samuel obeyed even though he was fearful. Why? Because he feared God more than he feared man. He trembled at the presence of God more than he trembled about the circumstances that might come upon him. And that is a testament for us as well. But there is an interesting interaction here, isn't it? As he comes to, to the village, as he comes to Bethlehem, the elders of the village, they tremble at his coming. And they ask him, do you come peaceably? Are you coming for good or for bad, Samuel? And he says, peaceably. Nonetheless, it is strange to, to hear that they would think this way. Or at least it is initially strange. Because when you understand what the role of the prophet in the Old Testament was, you kind of start to understand why they were so fearful. The prophet was the 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 spokesperson for God in those days, before the Bible uh, was uh, inscripturated, God would speak to the nation, would speak to his people through the prophet. And here comes the prophet. Is he coming to condemn us? Is he coming to rebuke us? Is he coming to tell us uh, that we've sinned? He's coming to bring good news and glad tidings. They don't know, but they're fearful. They're trembling. But he came in peace. And now I, as I thought about this, I thought how this applies to us in the New Testament. How does this apply to us uh, as a church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Now, do we, we don't longer have prophets, do we? There were prophets in New Testament times, but they, with the, with the canonization of the Bible, as the Bible was finished, they were no longer needed. And that was an office that, that uh, became obsolete, disappeared. So we don't have prophets in the New Testament. And no, the elders, the pastors, are not uh, the New Testament equivalent to, to prophets. Because in the New Testament, we have one prophet, and one prophet alone. We have one who is our priest, king, and prophet. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, to, and we need to fear him, and we need to tremble at his word. But there is something about 
respect that we see in the elders of Bethlehem to uh, a servant of God coming to them that we can apply in our New Testament life as church members. We are to be respectful of our elders. We are commanded to be submissive and obedient in Hebrews to our elders, for they will have to give an account uh, of your lives, for they care for your souls. But perhaps the most important application is not so much the drawing a parallel between the Old Testament prophet and the office of an elder in the New Testament, but drawing a direct parallel between what the prophet in the Old Testament represented and what we in the New Testament have in the Bible. They trembled at the prophet, not because the prophet was uh, uh, impotent, uh, it was not because the prophet had a, uh, something in and of himself that made them be fearful and respectful and tremble at him, but because they knew he was a spokesperson for God. God's word came through him. And in that sense, in the New Testament, we are to tremble and be fearful uh, or, and to uh, tremble and to have that godly fear at God's word. Whether that be on the, as we approach it, to read it privately in our, in our day-to-day devotions, whether that be on a Sunday as we sit under its, the, the ministry of the preaching of God's word, we are to have a, a trembling attitude. It is God who is speaking to us. It is God who is directly addressing us through his spirit. The elders in Bethlehem understood this. That God, that, that the man of God there, that the man of God, Samuel, in his presence, represented God's presence, the word of God in, his, in their presence. And every Sunday we should also tremble at the word of God that comes out of the minister's mouth. And that is a fearful thing for you guys listening. It is a fearful thing for me preaching. Anyone here who has preached knows this. The responsibility of being careful with what we say. The word of God commends this to us. Isaiah 66 says, All these things my hand has made, so, and so all these things have come to me to be, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Do we tremble at God's word when it is faithfully preached? Not at the minister, not at the preacher, but at God's word as the preacher, the minister is preaching. We should. But then the whole episode, the whole situation unfolds. Samuel calls for, the, for, the, for Jesse to come he looks at Eliab. Isn't it interesting, all this, that Samuel himself even falls to the same, pray to the same uh, mistake that Israel felt. Because as Jesse presents himself with his sons, as the older one, Eliab, comes, he looks at him and, wow, he's so uh, astounded by the physique, by, the, by, the, by, the, by how Eliab looks. And even Samuel, this man of God, he, he is tricked into looking at outward appearances. And he says, surely this is 
the Lord's anointed that is before him. But what does God say to him? Nope, that is not the one. And this is the, I said that chapter 16 functions as, uh, as a, a foundation for us to understand the whole of the book of Samuel. And it does, and it's particularly this verse. As we've heard or read already, this, this sentiment that God does, this idea that God does not look at outward physical stature, uh, at outward appearance, that God does not see as man sees, but God uh, sees at the heart, looks at the heart. Let me just pause here, and I need to be very quick, uh, or very brief, not quick, very brief in trying to explain this. And I will recommend something. I, I usually don't do this, but for the sake of you doing your own uh, studying of this passage, let me recommend this. Because this is not original uh, or anything. There are two names. One of them, I, I assume, is familiar. And if this piques your interest, I would just say, go and find or ask me and I'll send you a link uh, and listen to a sermon by Alistair Begg on this very same passage where he... Uh, expounds this this uh, this passage. Verse seven says this. Let me let me read verse seven again at the end. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So historically, historically, and almost unanimously. Theologians, Bible scholars, Bible commentators have understood this to be a contrast that um, the Lord does not look as man looks. We only see the outside, that's obvious. But God looks in the inner heart. And that's why David was chosen, because God knew his heart. Now this, if you're a good Calvinist, this immediately causes you to be a little bit apprehensive. Did God choose uh, David because he saw something in David that made him worthy to be chosen? How does this reconcile with the rest of Scripture and election? Now, Alistair Begg and another uh, Old Testament scholar, a Hebrew scholar, they mentioned that, and I, I did with my very brief, uh, limited knowledge of Hebrew uh, look at it, that this verse is actually... Um, not translated correctly. And I say this with, with uh, fear because it is a minority view. But that this verse should actually be translated. That, and that's the word that is there, actually. I did check this on, in, in the Hebrew. I'm not just regurgitating what I've heard someone else say. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man is limited to the, to the, to the eyes. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks according to the heart. That's, that's the literal, as literal translation as you can have, is that the Lord looks according to the heart. And this is important because if the Lord looks according to the heart, then it's, it's does it look according to his heart or does he look according to the heart of the person he's looking at? And then you look at the other passages that say uh, something similar and actually get translated correctly. Exactly the same um, 
uh, words are used in 1 Samuel 13, 14. I know this can be a little bit of a Bible study moment, but turn a few pages back. 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord says this. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. It's exactly the same wording that we have in chapter 16. In fact, if you turn a few pages forward in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 21, and I promise you there is gold in doing this. We'll get there. Chapter 7, verse 21 you have a similar Hebrew construction, and I would argue that the translators here translated it correctly again, 2 Samuel 7, 21. For your word's sake, this is David speaking of God, the pronouns change, but the, the, the Hebrew construction is the same. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, it's exactly the same Hebrew construction in these three passages. For some reason, historically, the translators have always applied this to according to the heart of the person that God is looking at. But that not, might not be the case. Why is this important? Because the emphasis in, this, in the book of Samuel is not that the person is worthy. The emphasis is that God is the one who chooses. He rejects according to his heart. And he chooses David according to his heart. God's electing love is what needs to be emphasized here. It is his sovereign will. And this should bring comfort to our souls. And this should be, make us rejoice. Because just as God chose Israel, not because they were impressive and more numerous than the other nations around, God chose Israel so that his glory would be magnified. God also chose David, not because he had something to commend him for himself. That's not why God chose David as king. But he chose David as king so that through the foolishness, through the things that this world considers to be foolishness, God would demonstrate his wisdom. As Paul himself, I'm, uh, and again, if you then bring the whole of scripture to this, you kind of go, yeah, I can see how this is the case. God says through Paul in, in Corinthians that it is the weakness, the weak that God chooses. God did not choose the, the wise and the rich and the, and the powerful. He chose the, those who were uh, weak in and of themselves to put to shame the wise. Those who were, uh, let me quote it uh, verbatim, God has chosen the foolish things to put to shame the wise. God has chosen, chosen the weak things to, of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world that the things which are despised, God has, and the, for, the things that are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why David was chosen. He was a young boy. Rudy, yes, full of life, that's what Rudy means. Well-looking in appearance. God chose him because he looked weak. And he comes in smelling like sheep. 
And here he is, the one to be the king of Israel, the one to be the Messiah, the anointed one over Israel. It is an astounding choice that God makes, and it's meant for us to see it. But perhaps the most astounding choice that God made was not in David's case, was in David's son's case. 700 years later, in Bethlehem, actually, a young boy is born. And what similarities we have here. Jesus was not the Messiah, the king that people expected. He was born in questionable circumstances, poor family. He came humbly, without, with no human fanfare, born in a humble stable in Bethlehem. Ordinary. But I, the Bible even tells us in Isaiah that there was no beauty nor majesty that we should look and behold and desire him. Why? Because it was the choice of God. It was always the way that God has done his work so that he receives the glory. Same way with choosing us. God did not choose us because he looked in our hearts. As some Arminians will say, God looked down through the corridors of time and he saw that we are faithfulness uh, and therefore he chose us because we, uh, he foresaw something in us. No, God chose us according to his heart. His heart of love, not according to our heart. Who would have imagined that God would have chosen David? Not even Samuel, not even Jesse, not even Je uh, uh, Jesse's other sons. As we'll see uh, in, uh, once we get to chapter 17, the brothers of, uh, of David, they, they, they sneered at him. They des despised him. And yet he was the one that was chosen. And this, you see, provides for us security. This, you see, provides for us comfort in, in, in God's election. When we understand that God's election is secured, not by our worthiness, but by his loving heart, it fills us with, 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 with praise for God. It will, we'll sing it in a moment, but it causes us to sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain? That's the point. That's the point. And again, there is another application here for us. I, don't think, I think all of us, we know David's life. But let me just briefly tell you, after this moment, things didn't start going well for David. In fact, you could argue, as you read in some of the Psalms, in fact, that from this moment onwards, his life was turned upside down. If you'd asked David before the anointing, David would have said to you, well, my life is, is good. I get to tend to the sheep, I have food on my table, I get to play the harp, 
and while I'm uh, shepherding the, and he was a happy boy. And if after this moment, things just got turned upside down in his life. He got, he got into a battle with Goliath, uh, Goliath. He, he got persecuted at one point, for, uh, at multiple points from Saul, having to flee, having to hide in caves. His life was turned upside down ever since God came into his life. Isn't that a, a, a teachable uh, thing for us? To be in God's fellowship, to walk in his ways, does not promise us a good life. Perhaps even you could argue the contrary. In order to follow God, to be obedient to his name, we will undergo difficulty. Or let me say it as Paul said it. We must enter heaven through much tribulation. You must, we must enter into the kingdom of God through must, much tribulation. Isn't that the example of our Lord? No sooner he was anointed uh, in his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist where the, the, the spirit descended upon him like a dove and he heard those words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased from the, ha from the mouth of God the Father. No sooner this happened, he was led by that same spirit who anointed him to the wilderness where he faced temptation and the devil. Our life in this wilderness is not meant to be easy. It is hard. But at the same time, we know what lies at the end of that wilderness. As Christians, being anointed by the Holy Spirit, being blessed by the, the dwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, means that we will face trials, persecutions, means that we will face temptations, but that at the same time means that we have the Holy Spirit. That we have that power, as Paul says, at work in, towards us who believe. The same power that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the guarantee that though there are tribulations and difficulties in this world, God, by his grace, will see us through to the end. Matthew Henry said this, and I love these words, the best evidence of our being predestined to the kingdom of glory is our being sealed with the spirit of promise and our experience of a work of grace in our hearts. And as David was tested over many years before the promise of his anointing was fulfilled in his accession to the throne, to the throne we too are tested. Although we received as Paul says to Ephesians, we've received the Holy Spirit of promise. Although we have been sealed, the down payment, the, the surety has been given. Now we are tested. And eventually we'll be entered into Canaan's land. And there all things will be made final. And we will be received into glory. And all sin will be put away. And all temptation and tribulation will finish and cease the tests of our faith, as Matthew Henry says, are common to the experience of all believers and call forth the same trust 
that the sweet singer of Israel, David, expressed so beautifully in many of his psalms. That's the kind of patience that we need to have. As the author of Hebrews says, we do not want you to become sluggish, but to imitate those through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. We read, didn't we, just at the, at the beginning of this service, Psalm 63. And here we are told that it was written in the wilderness of Judea, possibly when David was fleeing from Saul. That is the cry of our hearts. We too have been chosen by God according to his heart. We too undergo difficulties. But in the same way that David saw to the fruition, to the end, the God's sovereign purpose, we too will see it through to fruition. And that's what the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper represent. It's the promise that in this wilderness we'll be kept and we'll be graced, we'll be receive our, our daily needs. But there will come a day when the symbols represented here will be fulfilled in that great wedding supper in, the, in heaven when we will finally sit face to face with our Lord at, the, at that bridal celebration, at that wedding celebration where the church militant will be finally the church victorious and the church at rest. May the Lord grant us, even as we come to the Lord's table, to see that reality and to live not despairing, but to live in hope and trust over his care for our souls.